Okay, so most of you probably know that my claim to fame is that I am Jake Broward's mother. Really is a pretty incredible privilege. Um, and so that's part of the reason I'm here this morning. And he's in California. I'm in, we're in Nebraska. So thanks for having us here this morning. You got to hear from my husband last week, and you get to hear from me today. And it'll be interesting to see what you see in terms of who Jake is between the two of us and all by himself, obviously, because he's a pretty cool person. It's pretty fun for me to be connected at the heart to Finding Life Church. And I picture you being life givers in the city of Omaha as I pray for you, and it's thrilling to my heart. So it's kind of cool that that's my topic this morning. You're getting ready next week to start into a series on the life-giving practices. And I'm guessing that most of you are familiar with those four practices. If you're in life group, you definitely are. It's been part of what Finding Life Church is about from the very beginning. Um, and Jake asked me to give you a little bit of a background on where these practices came from and how they developed and just paint a picture for you that's maybe slightly different than you've had before of what they're really all about and what they offer. So the truth for today is I was made for more. I was made for more. That's a truth that's behind what it means to be a person who is on a quest for life, to gain life, to experience life, to give life as a way of life. Because life is what we have. We have this moment, this moment, and God is in it. And that's where being a life giver starts. And I don't know if you've ever done this before, but I want you to just do it with me for a minute. God is here in this room right now. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe is in this room. And if you look around, just let yourself look around and take in the reality that every inch of space around you is filled up with the glory of God. Do you feel it? Do you feel the power that is connected with that statement? God in all of his glory, is right here. And his invisible, glorious presence is constantly inviting and beckoning me to be still in here and know it. Now, I don't know what the heck that word glory really means. When I say that God is here in all of his glory, I don't really know what I mean. I know that somehow glory is the essence of God's person. And I know because Isaiah tells us in, four, in chapter 43, verse 6, God told us that we were made for his glory. So this glorious being spoke us into existence in order that we might experience and live in and drink deeply and reflect his glory. It's something mysterious. It's something beautiful. It's something powerful. It's something beyond what we can comprehend and ever will until we see him. We can't define his glory. We can't put it in a box. We can't figure it out. But our invitation 
is to swim around in the mystery of this glorious God with every moment of every day. Living in awareness that his glory is filling up this room. And somehow, in the context of experiencing his glory, the essence of who he is, I'm going to find out who I am. And I'm going to experience the life that he made for me to live. And I'm going to be a life giver, right? Because all life comes from him. I'll never forget the, the moment that this reality that God is here actually clicked with me. We had moved to Holdridge, Nebraska from California, where we had spent 18 years, where Jake grew up. And we had been involved in some really intense ministry for our whole married lives. And when my husband uprooted me and drug me back to Nebraska, I cried the whole way here because I loved my life and I loved my ministry. And I loved what we had lived and experienced together as a family in California. But something crazy God had planned for us that I never could have imagined and would have missed out on if I didn't say, okay, God, I'll go. If you want me to go, I'll go. And I came. And within weeks of being there, I went, oh, my gosh. I just thought I was being a good wife when I came here. But you had things for me that I could never have understood. And one of them was this moment in time. I was getting ready to go to our staff meeting um, at our church because Neil and I were both on staff at the, the Holdridge Free Church. And I get up, and I get up late, which I almost always do because I hate getting out of bed. So I get up late, and I decide I'm going to skip my shower and go have some time with God because I need it. Because so, I wake up in a bad mood every day, too. So I get up, and I go outside, and I have 20 minutes of just ah, being with God. I loved my quiet times, always. They've been a significant part of my life. So I go out and I have this amazing time with God, just walking and talking and meditating on him. And as I'm walking in the door, I'm going, God, I don't want to go in. I want to stay out here with you. Like I was doing this little mini temper tantrum in my heart. And it was almost, almost like I heard God's voice say to me, you don't think I'm inside? And I went, huh, you don't think you can experience my glory while you're brushing your teeth? I'm not going to be at staff meeting? And all of a sudden, it was this crazy, aha, significant moment for me where I went, whoa, I am missing out. I am keeping God allotted to these special times when I can worship him in church or be alone with him in a quiet time. And I remember being that. I remember being in the middle of my day, falling apart, going, when can I get some time alone so that I can renew my perspective? Wait a second. If God is right here, then I can access him. I can drink from him. I can be filled up with him at any moment of any time simply by choosing to believe that he's here. I love the way Paul describes biblical faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And the way that I've paraphrased that for it to make sense to my heart is there's more to life than I can see, 
And what I can't see is better than what I can see. But if I spend my whole life so caught up in what I can see that I don't experience God, then I'm not experiencing life. Because life is to be found in the invisible creator of the universe, the one who holds it all together and is intimately, powerfully, fully present always with everyone and none of us are ever alone. And I'm not sure that this all would have clicked with me if I hadn't read a book just before we moved. It's called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And honestly, everything about the life-giving lifestyle and the practices came out of, originated with my desire to experience what Tozer described in his relationship with God. And one of the things that he said is, God is here. What a difference it would make if we knew it. Right? And I'm like, I want to know it. I want to experience the difference. And so I was captivated by the possibilities. Even in the introduction of that book, Tozer said, most Christians don't have any more of an experience of God than, than non-believing people do. We go through life trying to be loyal to a principle and, and um, committed to an ideal. And he said, God is a person to be known. And he's right here inviting us to know him. It really captivated me. And yet I didn't know, I didn't know what to do with it. So God did that on purpose right before we move. We move here and life just quiets down. And I have the job of discipling women. And so I, I began to pull women together and, and start trying to sort through all that God has done in my life over 25 years of walking with him so that I can pass it on. Well, little did I know that the next 15 years of walking with him would change everything about what I understood and experienced in walking with him. And it started with this book. So shortly after, I began to tell myself the truth. God is here. I didn't call it life-giving truth. I didn't know that. I just started saying God is here and connecting with the reality of his presence. But there was this quote that I had memorized from Tozer's book. And it's, it's an amazing series of words. It's, it said, God is so vastly wonderful, so utterly and completely delightful that he can, without anything other than himself, meet and overflow the deepest demands of my nature, mysterious and deep as that nature is. Have you ever thought about how mysterious and deep your own nature is? There's so much to us that we don't even know is there. And yet there's this God that is so wonderful, so delightful, utterly and completely that without anything but himself, none of his blessings, he can satisfy our hearts. And so I began telling myself, not only is God here, but he's enough. And I began to consider the implications of that reality and went, oh, my goodness, what would happen to my life if I actually, deep down in here, believed 
that at any moment, no matter where I was, God was not only present with me, but all by himself, in the midst of any circumstances, any emotions, he was enough, period. I knew I didn't believe that because I sought after God for his blessings. I honestly believed that his blessings were what I needed. I didn't know it was him. I mean, I, I did, but I didn't. Not, it didn't make sense. It didn't click. And so I thought I was living to know him and, and find more of him, but what I was really living for was to find his blessings and to figure out who I needed to be and what I needed to do so that I could experience life. And I thought it was kind of like, I mean, I didn't mean to, but I kind of made God into a vending machine. Like a really awesome vending machine, not your basic one. But I sort of had this sense of if I put all the right things in, then I'll be able to make my selection and tell God what it is that I need, and he's going to give it to me. And, you know, if I choose to just go ahead and trust him when things are terrible, then I'll prove to him that I really do love him and then he really will bless me, right? So even my surrender, it wasn't foreign to me surrender, but even my surrender was really more about what, what is it going to get me in terms of the way that God will give to my life. And I didn't realize that I was using my faith to make my life better. And God wanted me to see my life as an opportunity for my faith to grow because he wanted me to experience life. He wanted me to become a life giver. He wanted me to live with him in peaceful, restful passion, full of life and overflowing so that instead of running into my day to try hard to live for Jesus, and show people who he was, I could just walk in the life that he offered me and allow it to overflow into the lives of others. I can't even tell you what this, the breath of fresh air that this was bringing to my soul because for 25 years, I had been pursuing God hard in all the ways that I knew how to pursue God every way that anyone ever taught me to pursue God. But shortly after, um, these two truths began to seek in and become a part of my everyday practice, I came across some verses that I know I'd read before multiple times, but I never let them sink in, and I'm going to read them for you right now. It's Acts 17, verses 24 to 28. The God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist. In him we exist. We find our being. We find out who we are. And he isn't far from any of us. But what hit me the hardest about those verses 
is how could there possibly be a being who has no needs? What the heck does that mean? What does that look like? And I found myself probably for the first time in my life feeling like the disciples did on the boat when he calmed the waters. And they said, who is this man? What are we dealing with here? And that's what I began to feel when I got in touch with the fact that there is this God who has no needs. He doesn't need air. He doesn't need water. Wait, he doesn't need me to worship him? He doesn't need me to believe in him? He doesn't need me to serve him? I can't ruin God's day? That's, I know, but I believed that. Deep down somewhere I thought that God was depending on me. And I was making all of it about me when really it's about him. And so I began to wonder, who is this God? And it caused me to, to go back to all those big words that I had memorized in the Bible, specifically in the Psalms, that describe who God is and go, what does that mean? Well, what does that really mean? If God's unlimited, that actually means he's everywhere. He can see everything and hear everything. He can see the past and the present and the future all at once. He can be in control of everything that's going on all over this universe at the same time. His hands are everywhere. His eyes are everywhere. He can see what's in the drawers without opening them. Right? What? I can't do that. I don't... I can only see what's right in front of my face. And I began to realize, as life-giving prayer was forming in me and I didn't even know it, how amazing God actually is by thinking through and wondering on all of his implications. It was really revolutionary for me to discover that God had no needs. And I couldn't, therefore, let him down, disappoint him. Right? I couldn't possibly be enough for him if he needed something from me. But if he doesn't need something from me, then I guess I'm enough. What? And that got me off on the gospel in ways that I never had been before in the reality of grace and what it means that I am in Christ and fully pleasing to God apart from my behavior. And so when I actually said to myself what some of you have read in the DTL book, so I and pleasing to God when I'm sinning? And I, I thought to myself, well, if I'm perfect to God because of Christ ever, then I would have to always be perfect because of Christ. Did I think that my sin was like too, power, too powerful, that it, so powerful that it could stain the righteousness of Christ, take away from the righteousness of Christ that I'm clothed in? And I had to recognize that there's a separation between God being pleased with me and God being pleased with sin, because he's not, and we all know that very well. But something began to just happen inside of me where all of the practices that I had been practicing, behaviorally speaking, began to take root in my heart. So the things that I learned from Navigators and Campus Crusade for Christ that, that were all things that I knew and that I applied to my life, I began to apply to my heart. And I began to change. 
And I began to change to the place where I couldn't recognize myself. So another thing was happening to me in Holdridge, and we were only there for two and a half years, and that is that I, when I grew up, I came to Christ and got immediately involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. So right there, planted in my DNA as a tiny, brand-new Christian, was that we are here to reach the world for Christ. And so my life had been immersed for um, these 25 years that I had been a Christian in the lost. And so I had tons of relationships. When we were in Burbank, California, and I was doing youth ministry, all I had to do was walk in the doors of the high school, and there were 2,000 non-believers, a little city, if you would, for me to immerse myself in. And I did. That's where I lived. I lived in the world of these non-believing kids. So we moved to Holdridge, and Neil and I both go on staff at a church, and we move there in November, and you know what happens when winter hits. Everybody goes inside their house and closes their doors and pretty much stays in, and you don't see anybody. And I didn't have a job in the community, and I couldn't rub shoulders with my neighbors, and I worked at a church. And I was like, God, you're going to have to do something here because I can't live like this. And I hear him, like, whispering, pray. Okay, I'll pray, I'll pray, of course, I'll pray. I always prayed. I've always prayed for people to come to know Jesus. But he kept whispering that to me. And then one day I just heard him saying, you don't think prayer's enough, do you? And I'm like, no, no, I don't. i got to do something. You told me to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And I'm really having this conversation with God, and I really mean it. And he began to work in my heart and invited me to pray for the Spirit of God to move in the hearts of people. And I started getting so excited about life because I could look out my window and pray for the Holy Spirit to work in my neighbor's hearts, and they didn't even know it was happening. They didn't even know I existed, right? And they didn't know anything what was happening to them. They were sleeping at night. And I knew that the Spirit of God was working in them because I was praying for them. It was my husband that came up with the name of Pray and Watch. But this practice was developing inside of my heart and life. And I was feeling this energy, this peaceful energy, and getting in touch with the reality that it's all about God. He's got to do this work. I can't. But the truth, what matters most is people finding Jesus, never became a truth um, that it never became part of the package. So I had these truths. God is here. And God is enough for me. And I am enough for God. And it was building this whole new foundation for my walk with him. And then we moved to Holdridge, or to Ashland to plant a church. And that's when these practices came alive. Because Neil and I and Jake were practicing these practices, Amory, the kids, and we, we, we taught them to our core group, and we taught them, and they started evolving, and they started getting real, and they started coming alive. Jake coined the phrase, walking worshipers, and it all just kept expanding and blowing my socks off as I practiced it with people in our life groups. And I was watching God change so much. And one of the first series that Neil did when we lived in, when we moved to Ashland and started services was the book of Philippians. 
And it was in the book of Philippians that two other truths started to come to the surface. And the one that really surfaced from that and became the unofficial motto of Riverview Community Church and Finding Life Church is what matters most, is people finding Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that that statement, I dare you to read your Bible and find another thesis statement for God's heart. It's God's heart for time. It's God's heart. It's what the word is all about. It's what the king and his kingdom means, right? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We want intimacy with the king and passion for his kingdom, and you can't separate them because the king is building his kingdom, and the king is passionate for people to come under his rule into his kingdom and bow down to him as their king. That's his heart. And find ing, that ing was a big deal to my husband too, and I didn't understand it at first. But the ing is, it's everything. It's the life-giving lifestyle. We can't separate ourselves from the truth. What matters most is people finding Jesus. Because yes, we found him. But how much of Jesus and his gospel and his essence have you actually experienced? Me either. And we have the rest of our lives to find and experience the God of the universe. Jesus is the only way that us sinful, broken people can connect with the glory of God that we were made for. The more, the stuff we can't see. That's what we were made for. That's where we're going to find what's worth living for. And the more we find, the more we experience. And the more we experience, the more life grows up inside of us. And the more life that grows up inside of us, the more it flows out of us. And that is God's plan for people finding Jesus, us finding him. So you're here today finding him. And my prayer is that you are going to become as captivated by the reality of God and all that he offers and the more that there is, that whatever motions you're going through with the life-giving practices, it'll be blown up. Those, Those motions will no longer hold you because you will see that the life-giving practices are just a doorway into the more. They're not an end in himself. They're not magic. They're not some sort of a formula that if you just say, I choose you, God, I surrender to you, I worship you, you're amazing, you're here. We can say those things all till they're blue in the face, but what it really means to follow Jesus is not what would Jesus do. It's what does Jesus see? What does Jesus know? What does Jesus value? What does Jesus prioritize? And I'm here to tell you that what mattered most to Jesus was that people would find him. And he knew that even he couldn't make that happen. The father had to draw them. It's a powerful, powerful truth that has more life to offer us than we can imagine then the finding doesn't stop. And if you've stopped finding, don't settle for that. 
You were made for more, whatever you're experiencing. You might be experiencing powerful intimacy with Jesus and passion for his kingdom. And I will still tell you, you were made for more. God is inviting you to the more all the time. And it's yours for the taking. God is here. It's up to us if we access him. It's up to us to drink. I could have a cup of water sitting here, but it's not going to moisten my dry mouth unless I take a drink, right? That's the accessing. And that comes through believing. And that's why what Neil shared with you last week is so, so significant. The whole life-giving lifestyle is based on truth. The truth about who God is, the truth about what God has done, the truth about God's heart, the truth about what God is doing because of his heart, the truth that he's coming back. And hell is a harsh reality. And heaven is beyond our wildest dreams. It's based on all those truths. But here's the thing. The two first values that you hold as a church Surrender and dependence are the key to experiencing any of its life. They're the two most important words in the Christian life. Because you can believe, but the demons believe. And they're not experiencing the life of Jesus. Believing involves surrender, absolute, reckless abandon to the truth. And absolute dependence on it. It is putting all of your eggs in the basket of truth. It doesn't feel true. I don't care. It is true. I choose to believe it. It's true. And I'm going to live as though it's true. Right? And I'm going to take that into every moment of my life. So that in death, in life, in birth, in vacations, in the mundane of everyday life and work, in good times and in bad times, God is here. God is enough. In the midst of my failures or my successes, I'm enough for God. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm not more worthy of God if I do well or if I fail. I'm not more pleasing to him. I'm dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God is at work in me right now, and he is not going to stop until he comes back. So wherever I am today, that's where I'm supposed to be. But what matters most in all those moments is people, including me, finding Jesus. Lately, I've been reading the book of James. Not that I haven't done it my whole life. I love it. Um, but I've been back at it probably 15 years, 20 years ago. I memorized it, okay? So that gives you a picture of how hard I've always pursued God. Um, but lately as I've been reading it again and I'm getting ready to teach it at a church back in San Francisco um, the book of James is screaming out to me you don't really believe what matters most is people finding Jesus you believe it it matters a lot to you it matters more than a lot of other things but it doesn't matter most because if it did, here's, who you, here's what would be happening in your life. So 
If you have your Bibles and you want to look at the book of James with me, I'm just going to spend a few minutes showing you a couple of the verses that are screaming the loudest to me. And my challenge to you um, is that you might read this book and see if you can hear James' words screaming the same thing to you. He starts out, he says hello, and then he immediately says, like, who is this guy? He says, greetings, count it joy when you encounter various trials. You should be celebrating and having a party if you're going through pain right now. If life stinks and it's hard, yes, yes, that's what you want. Not because it's what you want, because it feels good, but that is what you need in order to test whether or not you really believe that what you can't see is better than what you can see, right? Because we don't really believe that either. We believe it's good, but we don't really believe it's better than hugging the people that we love, that we can see and smell and taste and touch and doing the things that we do because we're human beings. And that's okay. That's normal. That's all we know. But God is calling us to faith that is so, to so surrender to what he says is true that it changes everything about us. So right after he says that about how it's going to produce endurance and endurance will have its perfect result and will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, we will actually get that God is enough by experience as we walk through the difficulties of this life, right? How else are we going to learn that he's enough if we have enough in the tangible realm? So then the next thing he says is, if any of you lacks wisdom, in other words, if any of you lacks this God-like perspective, that's what wisdom is, it's God's perspective on time. If any of you lacks it, you should ask God and he'll give it to you. But wait a second. If you don't really want it, you shouldn't ask. Because if, you, if you're asking for wisdom, which is God's perspective on time, but all you really want is for time to work well for you, then you're a double-minded man and you're going to be unstable in all your ways and you're going to get nothing by way of the experience of God. Whoa, how powerful is that? I'm just like, oh my gosh. And I know that that's, and then he goes on and he says, so if you have humble circumstances, glory in that, baby, that's where you want to be. If you're poor and your circumstances are humble, then you are more aware of your high position in God than those who have proud circumstances. So then he goes on to say, if you have great circumstances and you're rich and successful in power, then you should, you should glory in any chance you get to experience humiliation so that you come to understand that like flowering grass, you are passing away. And you don't take yourself too seriously. And you don't take this life and your money and all the things you have and your status seriously. And then he goes, he goes, come on, guys, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It's coming from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creation. He saved us out of this life to live one that's actually life-giving. 
Don't be deceived into thinking that if you're having good, happy, successful, lots of what feel like God's blessings on your life, because they are, every good and perfect gift comes from above, even the tangible ones. But that's not, that's not what James is saying. He's saying, don't even think about being, letting yourself get caught up in being deceived to think that all the good tangible things you have are the best blessings. That's not what we're after. And if we are after those things, we're going to get frustrated and confused and disappointed and dissatisfied and maybe even angry at God. I heard someone say last week, he's not helping me out here. If there's a God, he's definitely not helping me out here, right? And we think those thoughts too. But James goes on to say, the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. So be quick to hear and slow to speak so that you can be slow to anger because you stop and think about what the good and perfect gifts actually are. And then he goes on and, and tells us, to take the law of liberty, the gospel, and live in it. That's finding Jesus. The gospel is all about finding Jesus. And God wants us to live in the gospel, and James is calling us to, as if it's everything to us. It's not something we receive and we put on the shelf. We live in surrender and dependence to the gospel. And he says, if you don't, this is what you're going to be like. You're going to be like a man who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looked like. No, don't do that. Stare intently into the gospel of grace, the law of liberty that set us free so that it consumes your whole life. Keep it in front of you and let it impact who you are and what you think and what you choose moment by moment by moment because that's what the gospel was intended to do. Give us life. And then he goes on through the rest of the book and says, I know you don't believe that. What matters most is people finding Jesus because if you did, you wouldn't be showing partiality. If you did, you wouldn't value rich people or popular people ahead of poor people or unpopular people. And if you did, blessing and cursing wouldn't come out of your mouth. Like, it doesn't make sense. Are you a, an olive tree or a fig tree? Like, wh which is it? Are you fresh water or salt water? Because you can't be both, but you're trying to be both. So what's coming out of you is inconsistent. And you're a double-minded man. And then at the end of chapter 3, he says the most amazing things for us as Christians. He says, the wisdom of above and the wisdom of the earth are in opposition to one another. And the wisdom of the world produces and is lived out by jealousy and selfish ambition. And they're earthly, natural, and demonic. They come straight from hell. Selfish ambition is getting what I want. And jealousy is holding on to what I have and not letting anybody take it from me because that's my life. And the only thing that we, we can get and hold on to forever is Jesus. So the wisdom of God takes us out of the realm of what this world is giving us and offers us. And it teaches us to put our hope not in his blessings but in him.
And that's what surrender and dependence are all about. And I just want to, to close by reading you. Well, if you look at chapter 4, it's this whole thing, too, about how you don't have because you don't ask. But you don't ask because all you want to do is make your life work. I don't want your life to work. I want your faith to grow. I want you to experience life. I don't want you to, like, enjoy stuff. But at the end of chapter 3, he closes with describing what a person is who's living out the wisdom of God. A person who's surrendered and dependent to what God values and what God prioritizes. People finding Jesus. And here's how they're described. And I don't know about you, but this is what I want to be. And this is a description of a life giver. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. It's gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father, those are beautiful words to my heart. And I want to believe that you matter most. I don't want you to just matter. I don't want finding more of you to just be one of the things I'm about in a given day. I don't want others finding you to just be one of the things I'm about. I want it to be what I'm about. And I want all the cravings of my flesh to just get put aside. I don't want to be friends with the world. I want to be friends with you and love people the way you love them. Not for what they offer me, but for who they are, made in your image, on a journey just like I am, in a process of finding what's worth living for. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would create an appetite, a hunger, a thirsting for the more that you're inviting us to in all of us. An appetite that won't ever be satisfied, that will keep us seeking you with all of our hearts and finding you, believing in you, in order that we might find life and offer life and others might believe in you. It's our only job. And I pray that we would do it, that we would live it with a hunger and a fervence and a joy and a peace and a contentment that makes us into life givers. And I pray that this body of believers would be life givers in this community and be used by your spirit in ways that are beyond anything that any of us can imagine. By your power that mightily works in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.